early estimates are that there's around 120 Kiwi Australian adults that pass away each month with crypto. It's a good thought experiment, more than I would have picked. Yes, and even you asked me five years ago, I would have said, no, it's not going to be that many. But it's still a volume that justifies you know, starting this off. But then because of the level of adoption in some countries like Singapore, uh, being closer to 40, 45% of adults having some crypto, uh, that's then just three, four times more uh, potential customers that we need to serve. Kia ora, folks, and welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and today my guest is Paul Salisbury. Paul has been around the crypto scene in New Zealand for over a decade now. He's been a founding member of Blockchain New Zealand, also Blockchain Labs, and now Everlasting, a crypto legacy and estate planning company to help folks arrange transfer of their crypto assets, because one day you're not going to be around to sign a message with your private key. Paul and I talk about auditing smart contracts, layer twos and privacy, multi-sig and key recovery methods, and one of my favorite topics, long-term plans and low time preference. Before we get to Paul, a quick word from our sponsor. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward, They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about fees. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can of course be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. Uh, Cool, you ready? Yeah. Born ready. Uh, So the the guy that uh, introduced us, Paul Quickenden. Yeah, uh, he referred to you as a crypto OG, and uh, so I did some digging into your into your socials, and it looks like you've been tweeting about Bitcoin since like early 2014. Uh, you even founded a consulting company way back in 2013. So I'm interested in kind of taking a trip down memory lane of how you see it almost a decade ago. When did you first get into Bitcoin? Yeah, so I found Bitcoin already year before that in 2012. I was over in Switzerland and my hobby at the time was uh, building a 3D printer. Um, And one of the parts that I'd ordered and had been shipped to me had broken. So I was trying to find somewhere local rather than going back to the US supplier and ran into a kind of German, you know, small little shop that had exactly the part I needed. And when I came to check out, uh, there was PayPal logo, was, there was the Bitcoin logo. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, okay, cool. And I don't know if it was the Google kind of filter bubble, but at the time, everything was coming back German. It's all about Berlin and, you know, more of the Chaos Computer Club and their involvement in early adoption of Bitcoin. So I kind of thought it was more of a geographically isolated thing. And okay. it wasn't until I moved back to New Zealand later that year that it's like, hey, there's people, you know, kind of talking about it here in tech circles and, you know, amongst friends, like, hey, let's, you know, see what this is about and just experimenting and kind of seeing it more of a payment thing still, because that was my first lens. And yeah, of course, once you've kind of read the white paper, you go, oh, there's more to it than that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, hey, there's uh, a whole technology kind of revolution that is possible um, with what we were then starting to call blockchains. Uh, yeah, reading the white paper, I, I didn't have like a aha moment. I read the paper and I was like, I was like, okay, you know, there's some stuff here I need to like uh, go dig into and, and and figure out. So it was much more of a, a slow burn for myself, and it was it was also a bit later, um, right around that time. Ethereum ICO'd. Were you paying attention to that? Were you? Yeah, that was a really interesting time because. Um, by that point, we had already you know, started a consulting business and kind of been thrust into expecting to be the experts, right? And you know, <laughs> there's that famous quote that like, you are an expert once someone else calls you one, right? And so just because I've been paying attention over the years and keeping track on the forums, um, at that time, almost everything was announced on Bitcoin Talk, um, meant that, yeah, I was kind of expected to know. And uh, yeah, the Ethereum kind of pre-sale, and ICO there actually seemed too risky for me. I was okay. like, okay, I'll wait and see. And then 
obviously after that, it was like, okay, cool. This is a proper new yeah. network. Um, these guys, because at the time it wasn't, I know Vitalik had his name on it, but it was more of a group of Vitalik and people that had come and met together with him that were presenting themselves as this Ethereum project. There was no foundation, you know, none of that sort of stuff yet. So yeah, it was always, um, I guess that's my personality as well, being in security, it was like, let's wait and see, <laughs> you know, like kind of. I mean, that, that in itself is a bit of a contradiction if you're heavily involved in crypto, yet you also come from the security side where you're, you know, uh, full-time evaluating risks. Yeah, yep. And in fact, that was our first paying customer was a um, Bitcoin fund over in Sydney. And at that time, you know, they just found us on our socials and went, hey, we want to fly you and your business partner in, spend a whole week going through all of the possible risks yep. that we're facing before we put, you know, investor money into uh, this fund. And yeah, that was, uh, I think, a turning point for me as well of like, not only is this an industry that's going to grow, but also my specialization as a security researcher and practitioner would be actually really key to that broader adoption. Yeah, I um, when I first found out about Ethereum, I went to CoinMarketCap's website and that's how I found out about it. This is uh, in 2017. I just went, oh shit, there's like a... You know, I have a lot of catching up to do uh, uh, at this stage. So I was definitely a bit later to the scene. Um, if you've got a paying client coming from Sydney asking you to take you through the whole thing, you're definitely an expert by then. Yeah. Yep. Well, still winging it and, you know, really just trying to apply all of the existing principles, right? And so there were new things at the time, um, the concept of a multi-signature wallet where you're bringing together multiple keys to be able to um, kind of have approvers, if you like, and a, th a threshold of those different signers have all signed the same transaction, then it goes through. That was an alpha feature on Bitcoin with uh, Armory Wallet, and that's what they wanted us to assess. So we dug into all the code yep. and you know, really just did as thorough a job as we could. Um, but our end recommendation was this is still too risky. Like, you know, <laughs> we've got more on the risk side of things than we do on the... Tick, this is okay. For sure. Uh, so. we'll, we'll definitely come back to multi-sig in a bit. Um, let's talk about Blockchain Labs. You're co-founder of that, is that right? How, yeah. How did that get started? I, from my point of view as uh, an outsider, as someone, you know, getting into crypto on the Google, like who's in Auckland, who's in New Zealand, who's doing what, uh, I definitely found you folks uh, very prominent uh, just through basic search. So how did uh, the labs get started? Yeah, we, it, we can trace it right back to the first Bitcoin conference, which was down in Queenstown in 2014. And that was called Bitcoin South. And there were only about 30 to 40 kind of uh, local people there and almost as many speakers. Right? So <laughs> Fran had done a really good job of getting uh, the world's kind of other experts or people doing interesting things uh, in crypto at that time. Uh, into Queenstown uh, for that conference. That's where I met Mark, uh, Mark Pascal, yep. and he already ran a software development company. And you know, it was also around the time of the Ethereum white paper. So everyone was kind of going, who's going to actually develop these smart contracts or these decentralized applications? And so we kept in touch. And then um, after Ethereum had launched and you know, the first uh, kind of Mainnet chain was live, um, it was before Homestead. Um, and yeah, it was kind of like the Mark then popping up going, let's run a conference for you know Ethereum. And it's like, okay, great, that sounds <laughs> like fun. And yeah, that got really a lot wider attendance. Um, there was perhaps almost 200 people in Auckland and Wellington at that stage. And that was really great because you know, we could see that excitement and the enthusiasm that think people were going to build stuff. This wasn't just going to be a financial technology. You know, we'd kind of move from just exchanges or speculating on coins to actually building things. And the key event that happened the same week, so we had one of the Ethereum Foundation developers over at that conference, and he... Um, you know, was part of what was called the DAO at the time, and he was one of the key holders. Yeah. And so it was quite fun. And the, during the Auckland event, um, you know, we're kind of 
between speakers going, hey, there's $10 million of Ethereum in the DAO. And then next speaker, hey, there's $15 million. And okay, he was so starting to freak out. Watching right? it fill up, yeah. We were watching it fill up. Yeah. And then we went down to Wellington and we watched it get drained. And it was like, ah, that was just another aha moment uh, of before we build anything, we have to make sure it's all secured and audited. So yeah, a few more discussions with Mark and we said, hey, let's take some of the brightest developers that there are, train them up and everything, cross the language and start auditing smart contracts. Yeah, this is now, now the DAO is different from now what we colloquially know as DAOs. Yes, yeah, and to be fair, even the DAO back in 2016 wasn't really a DAO because it wasn't very decentralized at all and it was more speculation on what are all the things that are gonna be built on Ethereum. Yeah. Um, Laura Shin has a great book called The Cryptopians, uh, and it has a very uh, heavy section on the DAO and sort of details uh, almost minute by minute how all that went down. And I mean, it's uh, looking back, uh, you know, very crazy stuff. You know, we have since seen maybe higher dollar value losses um, or uh, security breaches, you know, but at the time that really shook the industry. Yeah, and that was almost 14% of all of the Ethereum in existence at that time was in that DAO contract uh, when it started getting drained. So, yeah, that definitely um, yeah shook a lot of people's confidence, but still there were enough people building that they then went, hey, we've just got to allocate a part of our budget is to get as many different audit teams as possible to review every line of code. How do you go about auditing a smart contract? It's really hard. Yeah. And in those early days, there weren't best practices. So that was the first thing was like, okay, can we work together with the other security research teams to establish some of those best practices? Can we also make sure that there's just not one, you know, even within our, our company at Blockchain Labs, we wouldn't have just one person review it. It's, you know, kind of peer reviewed. But then with our clients, we're like, we don't want to be the only auditor either. So here are these other audit firms from South America and the US and Europe that we work well with and kind of have that shared understanding and shared processes. So. Is that still how it's going today? Specialized firms, occasionally sharing resources? Yeah, it's still very specialized firms. There's more of them. And definitely some of those early firms uh, that are still running today uh, have you know, scaled like chain security. Uh, they started a little bit later, but uh, they actually became part of PwC Switzerland for a while there and then spun out again um, back to chain security. But they have really kept pace with the scale that was needed. Um, Blockchain Labs being in New Zealand, we couldn't attract quite as much uh, talent, but the talent sure. that we did have, you know, like knowledge sharing was very easy. New Zealanders love to punch above their weight. And... Yeah. Yep. And there's generally a trust, you know, like in the same way that um, in some of those early ICOs, you know, people were being trusted to be key holders, right? Um, some New Zealanders, that was almost how they, you know, came to prominence was just being a known person that right. would hold a key of a multi-sig to make sure that those millions of dollars weren't going to be spent inappropriately. Yeah, you still yeah you still see this uh, ongoing when projects pop up. You know who's uh, holding the keys to the treasury, yep. and uh, you know are they are they doxed? Are do we know who they are? Does does somebody know who they are, even if they have pseudo anonymous social media profiles? Yeah, and coming through 2017 when we had that kind of ICO craze, uh, our key function before we even looked at the contracts was to evaluate the client and the project team and the people behind it. And yeah, we turned down more customers than we actually accepted to audit because it didn't matter if they were willing to pay. If we couldn't find a real company and a serious team behind it, okay. then we're like, sorry, you're not a customer of ours. And that had some unintended consequences in terms of, um, and, you know, and you still see this today with audit firms, there's the kind of tier one auditors who do a lot of due diligence before they'll even assess the smart contracts and then you've got the tier two audit firms who will just take anything as long as it's paid <laughs> and the quality does vary between the two is there a legal implication here if you're not investigating who the team is and you're producing an audit for them 
or is it more about sort of ethics and integrity or it's more about ethics and also you know it's nice to be able to say hey we're an audit firm where just none of our projects or clients um, that we've worked with have been exploited right and there's always some trust assumptions the more complex the you know set of smart contracts for that decentralized application uh, the more that there is some person who might have control within that team and that's almost like a hidden risk in some of these cases it's like was it an insider exploit okay. or was it yep. an external person and so we yeah by doing that due diligence we just remove that risk as well yeah the uh, insider uh, security hole i mean we'll never be able to remove that one yeah well it's interesting because we're trying to get more and more permissionless right that was the whole point of uh, these blockchains but uh, you still see in ethereum you know there's some people with trusted kind of roles to um, be able to upgrade certain contracts if yeah. something went wrong or to freeze things and vitalik actually did a recent podcast um, on network state and yeah he was even talking about layer twos and how they're still not permissionless enough but if we can get to you know that point in the next year or two then he will feel like the job's done like we've finally handed over something that can just run yeah that's on uh Balaji's new new podcast yeah. uh was uh, episode one a good yeah it's listen a, yeah it's a great listen yeah. and um you know a nice walk down memory lane for for some of us that you know remember those uh those events but also i'd say a good primer um Vitalik can be quite technical in some of his podcasts, but this one was was really pretty yeah. easy understanding for the average listener. You uh, brought up there about layer twos. Have you been following what's happening uh, Ethereum layer twos? Yeah, one of our um, blockchain labs clients was them, themselves a layer two, and uh, so yeah, seeing that since about 2018, um, we're talking about rollups, um, we're talking about Plasma and Gluon. And yeah, those were the early kind of first steps, but they were typically a layer two that was led by a project that didn't necessarily allow everyone else to uh, get on there. So it's only been since 2020 that we've had Polygon and you now Arbitrum and Optimism right. that are real layer twos. Uh, real in the sense that uh, they're processing transactions? Uh, or in the sense that anyone can join and leave? Anyone can join and leave. Anyone can, you know, kind of build a different bridge other than the official bridge if, okay. if you want to. And, yeah, so the challenge still is um, that some of those, um, you know, controls around upgradability and those sorts yeah. of things, they haven't taken the training wheels off yet. So Yeah, I saw... Today or yesterday, Polygon announced their ZK EVM uh, should be testnet. Yep. Uh, <laughs> testnet should be live this month. Uh, end of March. And yep. Next month, yeah, yes. and, and, uh, in, in March. And so I think that's you know pretty exciting. Uh, there's a lot of hype around this term, ZK, these zero-knowledge, I guess, uh, procedures or, or proofs that uh, can prove and verify computation to have any uh, any thoughts on on this is, is there a lot of hype here or is it actually are we coming through and you know gonna wildly scale yeah so zero knowledge proofs can scale computation because um you can do things off chain and then create the same proof that it was processed correctly right and then just submit that proof on chain and so that will definitely help with a, another kind of class of scaling that's not about the transaction volume, it's the type of things that we actually want to run or execute in a decentralized way. And then there's the privacy kind of side of things where uh, at the moment, you know, most blockchains are just completely open book, you know, kind of yeah. every transaction. And then um, some, if there's another term for it, it's, yeah. Yeah, yep, it really is um, just, there's very few ways to actually protect your privacy if you are, um, and that's something you've got to accept at the moment. Even back in Bitcoin, you know, kind of realized very early on, it's not a good idea to do anything criminal on a kind of 
public blockchain because it's just completely traceable. Yeah, big misconception, right, with newcomers that, yes. that think that uh, you're uh, guaranteed some anonymity there. Vitalik himself, he, he flagged privacy as like uh, kind of a make it or break it issue on Ethereum. You know, he's like, you know, impressed with the progress so far, but if privacy cannot, if steps towards privacy cannot be made in the near term, uh, I believe his phrasing, you know, was that Ethereum itself isn't going to make it. Uh, so this conversation right now in, in crypto about privacy, and I guess it spills into the broader tech uh, conversation around data as well, massively important. Yeah, we're seeing a lot more of kind of users in general in tech wanting that privacy of uh, of their information and also of you know any transaction records. So I do think that is a big trend over this coming decade. And when you look back, um, I think one of Vitalik's main um, kind of challenges there was Zuko, who started Zcash, and as a cryptographer. He started from that first principle of privacy needs to be built into the chain right from the start. You can't bolt it on later. Yep. And so Vitalik is, you know, uh, kind of walking that line of I think there's ways, guys, that we can put the right uh, cryptography into the protocol in a way that um, we can have the best of both worlds. We can have some things that are completely public and easily auditable and other things where they need to be private, they can be. Yeah, um, I'm all for the best of both worlds uh, as well. Yeah, well, I like to look back at the rise of e-commerce, right? So early 2000s, uh, SSL certificates weren't a common kind of thing. And if they were, they were just on the checkout portion, right? So your logins, username, passwords, all those things were being transmitted okay. clear text yeah. over the internet, right? And so that was the main reason why you then had corporates go, oh, we need an intranet. We need something that's private just for our employees or our suppliers and they'll log in here and we'll just, you know, keep that separate from the main internet. And then as uh, SSL and, you know, encryption of internet traffic became the norm across every website, then it allowed so much more to actually be a part of the internet. Sure, there'll still be some walled gardens where yeah. things are behind a login, but they are generally accessible across a common network. And I do think that's what we need to see uh, within blockchains and specifically Ethereum. So you've got a do-ish project. I don't know how long you've been working on it. Maybe you can tell us what is everlasting. Yeah, so it's not too new in terms of I've had the need for something like everlasting um, for many years now of as anybody with crypto, um, you know, you age and you kind of see the value go up and down, but you keep thinking about, okay, what would happen if I was hit by a bus? And some credit as well to my wife of who reminded me what would happen if you were <laughs> hit by a bus. You know, it's like, okay, great. And since 2018, um, you know, lawyers have been coming to myself and blockchain labs and saying, hey, we've got this one customer and we have no idea what to do. Can we do something bespoke? And it's like, yeah, sure. You know, we can tailor something for those individual clients that want to include uh, crypto assets in their will or in their family trust. And coming into 2020, uh, I had you know, exited Blockchain Labs and was starting to think about what I'd do next. I went, well, that's still the biggest unsolved problem and how can we actually make it repeatable so it's not a bespoke you know, solution for each individual client? Can we make more of a platform that brings together the clients, lawyers, other financial advisors um, into one secure place and also make it uh, kind of uh, user-friendly in terms of they can leave at any time and they're not actually giving over control over, of their crypto assets. Because right? as we keep saying, it's your keys, your coins. Of course. Um, you don't want to be actually giving over complete control over that. So it's having that platform along with the cryptography to allow a multi-sig kind of arrangement to be put in place. So as long as you're still alive, you've got control over those assets and we're just a passive, you know, kind of approver on those. But if you were to pass away and we get the lawyer coming saying, hey, we're going to execute on this will now, 
great, those assets can be distributed to your loved ones. So you've got a video on your website. I'm going to quote you here. It says, uh, you say, when you start out in crypto, you're told to be your own bank. However, in reality, as your wealth grows, you need to learn to be your own fund. So can you uh, just expand on that? What does be your own bank mean and what does be your own fund mean? Yeah, and those are kind of terms that are thrown around a lot in the, the crypto industry, right? Be your own bank was definitely one that was back there in 2012 and 2013. And I think a lot of people didn't realize what it meant of, yeah, do you have a security team that is monitoring what's going on? Do you have, you know, different uh, honeypots or procedures that might uh, protect your assets even while you're on a plane or, you know, traveling somewhere else? And for those, some of those early Bitcoiners, uh, they could, right? You know, it's like, great, we'll put in place all of these security uh, procedures. But for the average person, um, uh, they never really got, okay, there needs to be the people involved to make that happen. That's not something you can just do yourself. And my experience, you know, shaped from that first client in Sydney around what it takes to have you know, crypto asset fund um, and all the operating controls okay. and everything yeah. around that. I'm like, okay, in fact, instead of it being, uh, you know, one fund, many customers, how about we just make it that that is like all the operating controls and everything around your assets and you're still in control. There's no fund manager per se. So you're talking about like in terms of a fund when you're dealing with, uh, other people's money when you're dealing with client money, then suddenly you have all these additional procedures and protections in, in place. Uh, I, I see it. I see the, the parallel here. Yeah. And even just a second pair of eyes, right? You know, there's a number of times where um, people have come and just said, hey, I'm doing this, you know, large transaction. Can you just check over and make sure I'm not signing something I shouldn't sign? And that's still an unsolved problem. So this is, yeah, a part of that is great. Once you're Kind of set up with everlasting there's the expertise and those controls to make sure that you're not mistakenly uh, signing a malicious transaction just back to your overall premise i also have this ongoing joke with my missus of course she knows that uh, I, I run the family books and a lot of that is in crypto yep. and of course <laughs> she knows that uh if i get hit by a bus that uh, it's going to be very difficult for her to recover uh and any uh, any of those funds and so i like Spent some time thinking about this. Uh, I, I've got little kids as well, so that you know pushes out my time horizon, you know, pretty much all the way to the end. Now that I'm thinking about um, my kids in the family, and you know, so I've thought about things like uh, running a dead man switch, yep. and I can you know have some sort of uh, just either like plain text distribution or some sort of treasure hunt to you know get passwords and keys, and you can kind of make it as complex, as creative as, as Hollywood could make it. Um, I've, I've also basically just thought about like asking a lawyer to, you know, handle it as a family estate policy. I've got some crypto coins um, and, you know, I haven't decided on anything and I've kind of, I'm kind of in the spot where I'm just thinking like, no, I'm going to leave it, you know, I'm going to leave it up to me and, and hopefully... <laughs> Hopefully there won't be an accident and there will be something to uh, some way to transfer any necessary wealth moving forward. Yeah, one of the challenges is when you put in place like a dead man switch or even, hey, there's these titanium plates buried in these you know locations that have the different seed phrases on them. Um, that's all point of time, right? So quite often it gets outdated really quick. You know, as we saw with DeFi and things really booming in 2020, I started to notice more of the loved ones coming saying, hey, can you help me access this? You know, my um, husband's passed away and, you know, I've got the seed phrase, but I need some help to access those funds. And that either moved to different addresses or, you know, it was like, oh, we can only recover a portion of those assets. And that's devastating, knowing that there were, was a lot, much bigger sum that was there that if their loved one was still alive, uh, they could benefit from, but because that person's passed away, uh, some or most in some cases of the crypto assets were inaccessible. So I think it's got to be something that's more uh, managed and kept alive, right? And 
uh, ensuring that it's something that you don't feel like it's locked up and you can never access it. But on the same side, you've got your flexibility, but you know, should you go tomorrow, the whole amount is recoverable. Yeah. I think that's key. Okay, so in terms of uh, maybe a frequently asked question, uh, can't a lawyer handle this for me or is that pointing back to the same issues you just... Yeah, so lawyers are also risk adverse. They're not unlike security professionals kind of going, hey, how do I make sure that this doesn't end badly, badly for me? You know, it might be okay for the client, but um, they aren't really trusting that they could hold even your Facebook or YouTube, you know, username and password. If you were an influencer, um, they're like, no, no, don't give us any credentials or anything. And then you think about digital assets being... You're serious. That's that's a red flag or that's a... Um, yeah. Could be an issue. Yep. It can be an issue that okay. um, even though, uh, you know, a them having a shard or a piece of a private key that has, you know, been separated there, they really, really do worry about what if they mess up, right? And so... They also um, have, you know, the law hasn't really evolved so well um, in order to actually separate what, whether custody of a private key is also part ownership of those assets. And so, yeah, there's that whole legal framework of it does need to be put into that estate plan in a way that... Um, it changes in nature that they are, you know, completely isolated from any form of ownership while you're alive because yep. they're your assets and you're in control and you can do what you want with them. Um, but it's only then tipping over both legally and technically once you pass away that they are then enacted uh, with the permissions to access those funds. I guess we're talking about a you know a brand new kind of paradigm here. Uh, if you have a private key, those are you know bare assets. And yeah, uh, so that that also, you know, in my internal discussions with how do I do this, it's like, well, I'm not sure I just want to give a law firm or a lawyer my private keys. Uh, and, you know, there's more sophisticated ways to do it. But that's kind of that's kind of where where it starts. And I guess that's what you're talking about as well with the credentials. Um, if you give someone uh, access to, you know, then be able to either move the coins uh, or sign a message, um, you know, or post something nefarious on YouTube or something like that. Um, so let's talk about some of the sophistication that you can bring to it. Let's come back to, to multi-sig. What is multi-sig and how are, how are you using it? Yeah, so broadly, multi-sig is, you know, kind of going back to those early days in Bitcoin where you could have separate private public key pairs that would all sign a message to create a, a joint wallet and then have that set with a threshold. So be that two out of the three keys need, needed to sign anything before the transaction would be accepted on the network, or three out of five, you know, kind of a majority of the signers were needed uh, to transact. And Ethereum actually took that uh, uh, another kind of step further in terms of with smart contracts, we can even get more granular permissions to say, this key can propose a transaction and these ones can approve it. And, um, you know, we can say not just a simple majority of three of five, we can say these three are, you know, there and only these ones are used if those ones haven't signed and different combinations there that allow yeah. uh, for more fine-grained control. And really we should call that more of a multi-key wallet rather than a multi-sig, even though it's validating the signatures uh, that have been put forward from each of the key holders, um, it's not set up in the same way between it was in Bitcoin and its genesis and how it is now with Ethereum and uh, multi-sig smart contracts. These keys you're talking about are all independent. They're not generated in like a way that your wallet does multiple keys or anything like that. Correct. And that independence also gives a really nice uh, transparency and auditability of who signed, right? And that's another key thing that when you're looking at uh, lawyers, they want to be able to, you know, if there was anything happened to your assets, they want to be able to stand up in court and say, look, you can see on-chain we didn't yep. sign that transaction. Our oh, yeah. key wasn't used. Very important. Yeah. 
And so coming back to this idea that I still maintain ownership of my coins, uh, if let's say, let's say there's a legal team and then let's say there's the everlasting group, is that already out majority of me where, where I only have one key? Yeah, so our typical setup is to have the client with multiple keys. Okay. Um, so that, yeah, you can already uh, maintain that um, custody, control, you know, your keys, your coins. So uh, that's an important part of delineating then our keys can only be used in certain ways and your lawyer's key um, should only be used in an even smaller subset of ways. So. Do I need to also bring on my wife or my partner in order to do this? Yeah, that's another really nice way to um, you know, bring them on that journey and get them a bit comfortable is they might hold the second key. And the other benefit that you've got in this uh, type of setup is losing any one key is no longer a critical failure, right? If you are just relying on your own wallet and um, whether that's a hardware wallet or software or something happens and you can't recover your wallet, it's gone. Whereas once we get into this multi-key setup, um, one, losing one key isn't a problem. That key can be rotated. And in fact, it's good practice to keep rotating keys so that if you have exposed a key to a potentially malicious website, uh, they can't just sweep yep. your wallet and take all your assets. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point about blockchains in in general. And you mentioned it earlier about uh, I think you said, you know, if you're if you're on a plane and you're not monitoring what's happening, right? Blockchains are kind of unique in the sense that uh, you might not know that you've been hacked until you go to make that next transaction. You know, you're not getting you're not getting an alert on your phone saying that, uh, I mean, you could sign up for an alert by a third par party service. Um, however, until you look on chain, you might not have any idea. Yeah, whereas then you flip over to the security professionals and we get alerts all the time because we're set up in that way and uh, yeah, it can be middle of the night, great, need to go <laughs> in and protect uh, either a protocol or uh, individual funds. So. Yeah, you're kind of getting that benefit of the security team if you uh, choose to. By the time you bring in multiple people to engage in this process, so you bring in, you know, your family members or your, I'm not sure, your estate trustee, and you hmm. and you bring in Everlasting, who are the, you know, who have the audited smart contracts and are the technical experts, and you bring in your legal team. Are we adding heaps of complexity to this system in the sense that? What we really just need is some sort of like social proof between me and my partner or me and my kid uh, to say, okay, yeah, dad passed away. I know he's got some coins. Um, where, where I'm going with this maybe is um, in terms of having like a redundant key set so that you can, you know, have a boating accident, you can lose some keys, but still be able to recover your crypto. Uh, I think another thing Vitalik is working on is this idea of like uh, social recovery. Yeah. Have you been looking into that? Yeah, and in fact, I've used social recovery in the past. Um, there's a few wallets um, that already have that in place, okay. such as Edge Wallet. Um, and yeah, it, it does work, but it's still a burden on those people yeah. to actually maintain their keys. So you just don't know they might have um, you know lost access or yeah. other things there. So you're just not having that maintenance, I guess, if you like. Uh, the other thing is, I think we need to span the whole spectrum. So we've talked a bit about multi-sig um, and, you know, kind of social recovery and hardware wallets and things are down at the individual level, kind of get to multi-sig a little bit more of this uh, corporate or at least amongst firms or amongst people and companies. And then when you come to the crypto exchanges, you've got what's called multi-party computation, which is how an exchange can have thousands of, you know, private keys to control each uh, individual deposit address or um, address for users to send uh, their assets in or to withdraw them out, which can be quite high volume. And my goal with Everlasting is to bring all of that together into one framework that's repeatable. So uh, social recovery and also some of the zero-knowledge proof uh, social recovery, I think is going to be a a really interesting um, place for us to explore. So things like 
uh, you might have an a, a address that isn't at all part of this you know everlasting multisig, but similar to your dead man switch, if it hasn't transacted in sixty days, then a message can be signed that would then sit, provide that zero knowledge proof that great now those funds can be pulled into the multisig to be dispersed to your loved ones. And I think there's going to be a lot more innovation there so that those, uh, you know, kind of safety rails around users uh, mean that they're not feeling locked in, but uh, assets still can be recovered at the end of the day. Are you planning on handling NFTs for people as well? Yeah, that's one of the most popular requests, actually, because of signing messages is so common in the NFT space, right? When you log into OpenSea, you sign a, a message with your private key. Yep. That That's the main attack vector that is so commonly um, affecting users and they're losing their high-value NFTs. Another interesting thing is actually the NFT creators. They've got royalties that are encoded on-chain to come to that specific wallet. And they want to make sure that their non-crypto savvy family could benefit from those royalties for generations to come. Oh, that's another, yeah, that's a cool use case as, as well, being able to maintain that um, long-term into the future. Yeah. What's your, um, what's your business model here? How are you going to, you know, if I, if I maintain control of my keys until the end, you know, this could be a very long-term thing. So, you know, is it a subscription or how do I sign up? How do, how do you make money? Yeah, and just in terms of that length, you know, when we're talking with some of our early customers, it's like, hey, we've got this, you know, 30-year business plan, but then there needs to be the 300-year kind of business plan. It needs to outlive all of us. So that's definitely something that we've got in mind. And one of the things that makes it sustainable is the concept of, staking so you can stake your ethereum to be earning a quite you know safe protocol reward at that <laughs> layer one <laughs> i love it uh, kind of chain level so by participating and validating that's a longer term uh, view and so un instead of us banging the drum being like you're not secure enough and what would happen if you passed away like hey you know, there's an incentive here. We can securely set you up with some staking that is accruing and actually your balance is growing year on year, right? So if you've got that mindset of, I want to leave some, you know, crypto assets to my wife and kids, then that's really where we're finding the business model works the best because people uh, don't really think about security um, or they think it's too complex or too costly and we're making it more of a incentive of like, hey, you get the security and you get this upside. Yeah, you know, that's one of my thoughts as well is that a service like this, you know, more tailored to either high net worth wealthy people or like groups or family trusts or things like that, right? What about, uh, you know, uh, Joe Main Street has, has some NFTs, has a few thousand dollars. Uh, you know, are, are you, can you target those clients as well? Yeah, and we do have that kind of entry-level uh, product that is tailored for that of, hey, I still don't want any lawyers or other professional service providers as part of this, but I do want some help setting this up in a way uh, that there are some controls and I know that you guys can you know, do some recovery at the end of the day, but it's not the whole package. So yeah, while we've got that estate you know, as our main product uh, for, say, the high net worths, uh, there is the everyday product as well, which is just the security piece. So I did some research on some, maybe some of your competitors. We'll we'll, we'll see what what yeah. you what you think. Uh, so I just found this company on Twitter called Nunchuck, and they are for Bitcoin. Uh, you know, someone posted a screenshot. It says a Bitcoin inheritance plan has been activated. So I just did you know a, a quick look. They're charging four hundred fifty a year for a subscription. Uh, to their gold plan. Uh, and the way they're doing it is their inheritance uh, is time-locked. Uh, so it can only be used to claim your Bitcoins on a future date chosen by you. So uh, you also mentioned the time-locked nature yeah. uh, of, of what is possible here. And like, that's kind of interesting as well. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe I want to time-lock stuff 
for my own savings benefits or maybe I want to time lock stuff until my kid reaches a certain age, not necessarily uh, to, to do with, with my death. So presumably you're also interested in this idea of being able to lock until a set date. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's, again, just the client um, requests, right? And it's like very simple to implement that. And so that's not something we're charging extra for. If that's something you want, yeah. right? We'll just that's part of your uh, kind of estate package. So they do. Uh, they say they do a two of three multi-sig, or a two of four multi-sig. Um, at a, another Bitcoin company, Casa, they do a three of five multi-sig yep. or a three of six multi-sig. Um, Casa's plan is m much more expensive, five thousand dollars a year. Um, but in terms of this, like. M of N multi-sig, is there like best practices or industry standards for how you sort that out? Yeah, and I think the best practices really do come down to the distribution of those keys, right? So not just uh, by having them in different you know, people or different legal entities, but also geographically. And so with some of the ones at the lower end, there's not necessarily the geographic redundancy um, that you might actually want in case of natural disasters and those sorts of things. And yeah, CAS is definitely one of those early uh, kind of providers that has served Bitcoiners for a very long time, um, but is also quite North American centric. You know, they've really right. struggled to get out of that uh, kind of uh, US uh, legal structure kind of thing to really adapt it. And so that's where... Um, I had tried to onboard with Casa back almost nine years ago, and it just didn't work for me. It wasn't the right setup. And so we're trying to make sure that by bringing lawyers on this journey in the platform, that the lawyers can actually make sure that legally it's yeah. the right fit for you. And so that means that whether you're here in New Zealand or Australia or Singapore or South Africa, it's going to fit your needs. So we've got a much higher likelihood of being able to solve your problem. Yeah, so I mean, that's a good point that you probably want a service based where you are familiar with all the local structures and, and laws. Yeah, and legally as well, a lot of the laws around, you know, wills and estate go back centuries and they do expect a local lawyer to go to the courts to do what we call probate, uh, which is then processing and saying, yes, we have, you know, correctly transferred uh, this person's assets on, if there were debts, they've been repaid. All of those things still needs to be done by a local person. And we're not going to see that change very often, even in terms of like the physical signatures on a will, right? You know, there's Various firms out there are like, oh, we're just going to do digital signatures. You can, you know, do your will and, and sign it with your, a, uh, you know, kind of private key. Yeah. Um, but the actual lawyers in the high court, you know, we we're talking with um, quite a few of them. They run their hands under the physical piece of paper to feel the indent and go, yes, great, this is a physically signed. It's not a photocopy. It's not forged. That is the the copy of the will. And while we've got all of this cryptography and wonderful things we can mm -hmm. do to enhance that, that's still where they're going to be for some time to come. Are you now an expert in uh, estate law? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm having to expand that across you know, the, all the jurisdictions that we're going into. So while we're starting New Zealand and Australia, it's quite simple. When you get to some of uh, Southeast Asia, like Japan and Korea, um, they have sometimes more flexibility, but also more um, nuance in terms of the process that has to be followed. Here, in well, at least New Zealand, Australia, and some of the common law countries, um, that means it's kind of law that we've inherited from the UK. Um, there's a lot of trust in the lawyer, and the lawyer almost assumes, you know, a full all the powers of you as an individual to actually execute on things. And some of those other um, cultures and you know, legal frameworks, uh, there's more kind of checks and balances, which is yeah. nice to see. Um, I think you have a Singapore flag in your Twitter. Is that right? Yeah. So Singapore um, will come later this year. Um, so we're already 
uh, kind of live with New Zealand and Australian customers. And I think it's really about scaling, right? So our early estimates are that there's around 120 Kiwi Australian adults that pass away each month with crypto, right? And, okay. you know, that's, that's a fair few, right? It's part of the... Uh, it's a good thought experiment, more than I would have picked. Yes, and even you asked me five years ago, I would have said, no, no it's not going to be that many. But adoption is there. Sometimes it'll just be a smaller amount. Other times it'll be a larger amount. But it's still a volume that justifies you know, starting this off. But then because of the level of adoption in some countries like Singapore, uh, being closer to 40, 45% of adults having some crypto, uh, that's then just three, four times more uh, potential customers that we need to serve uh, each month. Singapore is going for it, 40, 45%? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And I think they've also got an interesting attitude, both on terms of speculation, right? They're happy to speculate with a portion of their wealth. Um, so with Korea and Japan, you know, they've got quite a large amount of crypto adoption, but then they're also really comfortable with like, well, of course I have a lawyer and of course I've got my tax advisor and, you know, yeah. bring this whole wealth package around me. So uh, they're really a perfect fit for what we're doing, um, but we want to make sure that we can, you know, we don't just stick to the countries that we're comfortable in. We want to keep expanding that out. Uh, yeah, I suppose as well other other cultural places with different procedures will, you know, perhaps you can learn something that can then be applied, be applied here. Um, we kind of, there's quite an overlap here, right? Because we always think of like, oh, crypto is global. The blockchain is anywhere you, you can run a node, anywhere you've got the internet. Uh, but really, you also have to include your local jurisdiction. You have to include, you know, where you are living and and you know where you who you can call up to say can you help my family in the, in the event of emergency, um, so quite an intersection there. Uh, how do you view the idea of long term plans? And by long term, I mean I mentioned already about like having a family and how your uh, time preference you know really goes all the way to the end. Or uh, in Bitcoin terms, you're lowering your time preference quite a bit there. Uh, I think Satoshi had the ultimate vision, perhaps you know, even reckless by today's standards of, of thinking like, okay, we're going to have, we're going to distribute these coins so that we can get them in the hands of the people. Uh, but the whole project is going to take 130 years until all the coins are distributed, and like, you know, maybe even some arrogance there to think that your software is still going to be running uh, uh, next century. You know, not even past your own lifetime, but past your uh, ancestor or your uh, your kids' lifetimes, right? So uh, I love stories that involve things like this. Uh, another one that comes to mind is like uh, the stonemason who's building a cathedral, uh, who is, knows full well when they start, they're never going to see the the end of this, be just because of the nature of how long it takes. Um, so as someone who's you know now in low time preference business, how do you view the, these things? Yeah, I think also we can look not just the, you know, kind of decade that we've had crypto, you know, as an industry, but also the preceding decades of, you know, computing and networks back since the 80s, right? And seeing that uh, you could have been the developer of an early internet protocol and you would be now very surprised that it's still running, right? So with technology and especially protocols, Right. Apps, we expect them to update and change and, and morph over time. But a protocol, kind of once it's formed that consensus and the set of rules that we're going to do this, it can be very long-lasting. In fact, that's why I chose the name Everlasting uh, for my company is because it is going to you know, like have that very long time frame where things will still keep running and... The shorter time preference is make sure that you do make the most of it and do keep monitoring uh, security or you know actually keeping up to date with uh, the chain or wallet upgrades, those sorts of things. But in essence, uh, you could, you know, kind of if you could see into the future or time travel, you know, see that 
actually things that are either left behind as fragments, people who have passed away, or things that you put in place might still be there running past your lifetime. And we have one um, early client who's actually very interested in cryogenics and hence the 300-year kind of business plan to make sure that if he is reanimated um, in a century or two from now, that his crypto assets will still be there uh, ready for him to reaccess. So, yeah, there's definitely people thinking in that uh, much longer time frame for sure. I love it. Our, our man, Hal Finney, right? He also yeah. was... Uh is hopeful, I suppose we could we could say uh, on that lines too. Um, there's a there's a maybe a niche Bitcoin philosophy that says that like the idea of passing on your bitcoins for future generations is not really how we should look at it. Uh, you should be able to use your Bitcoin for your own personal wealth generation, and so that you can uh, you know be free to contribute, and then. If Bitcoins end up being lost, and certainly we have seen lots get mm. lost in various ways, uh, you know, then really that's a gift back to the community, fix supply, reduce the total amount out there, buoy everyone else's Bitcoins. What do you think about that? I, I, I do see that from the libertarian kind of anarchist uh, view, and definitely it's one that has been quite common. However, we just don't see that reflected in Price, right, so it's too simple a supply demand um, kind of equation, and actually the coins that are lost, you know, there are some charts that kind of track lost bitcoins um, or you know coins that haven't moved for more than X number of years, but there's not really a precise way to account for that, so it doesn't seem to actually manifest the yeah <laughs> the end result that they were going for, um, and then contrast that with kind of my personal view of actually if you're going to leave something for you know humanity past your lifetime then wouldn't it be great if you could actually lock up your ethereum that is being staked in a way that nobody can ever access the original stake but the ongoing rewards are being dispersed out um, as a charitable donation to either different community organizations or uh you know, charities that can then yeah. continue on. To run the network, to support run the developers. Network and also, um, you know, help with education or other human needs that, you know, might be there in years to come. Um, what's up and coming for Everlasting? What can we look for for those people that are interested? Yeah, so the actual staking portion of the, the product is what we're really focused on at the moment. So customers can already onboard with the security and the estate with lawyers, but the staking is something that we're uh, bringing live in the next few months. And one of the things uh, we're doing that's, you know, again, kind of quite topical is not relying on centralized entities to actually run the validator nodes. So we're uh, distributing that and making it um, still accessible. You don't need to be super techie to run your own node and risk that there's off, you know, goes offline or there's downtime and you get slashed. But we're um, distributing that uh, so that we can jointly run nodes together. And I think that will also help to uh, ensure that longevity of uh, those assets as well. So you're not depositing into Coinbase? And, Correct. Uh, yeah. And saying, here you go. What about what about something like Rocket Pool? Um, Rocket Pool's good. It's still... Um, relying on the other operators that you don't necessarily know. So there was actually a case uh, earlier in the month where somebody's going, who is this validator that is just constantly getting slashed because it is bringing down the whole, you know, kind of profitability of Rocket Pool. Um, so I think it, taking that concept but making it amongst known people that know each other and can actually okay. monitor uh, what's going on is... Uh, it's what we call distributed validator technology, and that's something that is, again, a test nets at the moment, uh, but will be a product that we can offer uh, very soon. So you can have a small number of people that all have vested interests uh, that are all known, as opposed to a decentralized protocol where you have you know, potential for civil identities and a lot of anonymous people in foreign lands that you can't get a hold of. Um, and 
the benefits of doing it this way? It's really about that redundancy. And okay. so you can set it up in ways that you maintain complete control over those assets. The withdrawal key uh, for that ETH is still back to yourself, your wallet, but you can run multiple clients. So in the case of like five uh, different individuals, you can split that to four others in a way that each one of them benefits from the redundancy um, of the others. So as long as there is a majority out of five, you know, so three nodes are still, you know, having internet and power, then all five individuals are all benefiting from the staking rewards of their stake without um, needing to worry about ah, the floods of just taking out yeah. power in my neighborhood. No, I think that's a really unique innovation, especially as applied in this space. Uh, have you, is anyone else doing this? Have you? Um, yeah, it is one of those things that's just emerging. Okay. So um, we are seeing some teams um, in the US and in Switzerland that uh, we're all kind of working together on that, but as a product, uh, it's really about making it easier for those individuals. And Everlasting, because we have this self-custody ethos anyway of customers keep custody of their assets, it's really a good fit for us, whereas it might not be a, a good fit for other platforms or services. Um, coming to the end of our time here, uh, I want to talk about Blockchain New Zealand for, for a minute. Uh, I'm kind of a, a newcomer. I've been in the org just over a year, year and a half maybe. Um, but you were actually a founding member, is that right? Way back when? Yeah, well, there was an initial failed attempt in 2014 okay. uh, to set up what was going to be the Bitcoin Association. Okay. And I just couldn't get the required number of people to sign on the same document of what our policies were and yeah. what our objectives would be. Um, so then I uh, tried again um, end of 2016 and, yeah, kind of, started that first blockchain association out of mostly out of the meetups that were already there. So Bitcoin and Ethereum meetups in Auckland and Wellington had the highest attendance. And we were trying to professionalize how we would run the events and you know get we were getting, you know, all of these fantastic speakers who might be traveling to New Zealand saying, hey, I'm gonna be in town, you know, can you just spin up an event in two weeks time? Right. And so, yeah, the association really helped with that. Also, outside of the conferences and events, you know, there were businesses, be it, you know, kind of banks or other corporates who were like, hey, we want to stay abreast. We don't want this to be just a technology that's out there in the fringes and, you know, us trying to do our own separate thing. How do we bring uh, the people actually working in blockchain together with some of the people that might benefit from it um, in a more corporate sense. And so that's how it evolved from just kind of the event focus into what's now Blockchain NZ as, as part of that NZ Tech Umbrella Association. So from your uh, lens, give me some advice here. How can we, how do you see our role moving forward? How can we you know, strengthen the organization? Um, how can we contribute? What, how do you see our value to member organizations like yourself playing out? Yeah, I still see so much of the value is in that educational content, right? So like this podcast, it's really fantastic for people to just learn something new each week and each month for where they are on the journey, you know, because all too often we kind of assume a level of knowledge around blockchain and uh, crypto that perhaps is inaccessible to people who have joined more recently. So I think embracing that and um, also, you know, there's uh, like the statistic I gave earlier, right? You know, so it's roughly around 20 Kiwi adults that we estimate would pass away with some form of crypto um, in New Zealand each month. And yeah, just doing that research and assessing what is actually the state of play, what types of uh, security are people using for their crypto assets, I think is really valuable to inform people who are looking at it, say, take lawyers going, wow, that's a lot more than I thought. I should actually upskill and better understand this so that I can serve my clients who they have wills with me. I just don't know that they also have some crypto that's not included in it. So that evolution, I think, is is a really important part for Blockchain NZ. 
Very well said. Uh, you mentioned earlier in a positive light about, uh, in a positive light, we're talk talking about death here, about a partner passing away and, you know, uh, needing to be able to have that communication system in place. Uh, there is a now famous story in crypto around Quadriga where the uh, founder, Gerald Cotton, and his wife went on honeymoon in India. Uh, he died of a heart attack, apparently, uh, and took those private keys to his, to his grave. Um, is is this a is this a lesson for us all to learn? Definitely, yeah. In terms of having a, a centralized party having some keys that control coins, uh, you know, we've always had business you know practice and and helped other companies or other fund managers to make sure that they've got controls so that there's no single key person risk of. Uh, control over some keys and that serves not just the fraud element of one person runs away with the money which some people speculate might be the case uh, if he suddenly pops up um, somewhere uh, actually alive yep. but also in the case of just those unexpected events and I think people individually struggle to think about it in that same sense so um, you can also go, well, I'll tell my wife or partner where my seed phrase backup is, but if you both go, then, you know, what happens then? And right. Um, we just came through two cyclones in three weeks here in, uh, well, here in, in New Zealand, I guess, but particularly in Auckland and the North Island. So hypothetically today on your way back to the ferry, a uh, tree falls down and takes you out. What happens? What happens next? Yeah. So... For me, thankfully, I've you know kind of pioneered a, a structure that can ensure when my lawyer is then going, okay, what are all the assets there? It's accounted for, uh, including the crypto assets, and you know between um, my wife also being part of that package, it's those assets are transferred, and in many cases, people actually want them to stay in crypto. They don't want it to be like, oh, I actually sell the, the crypto assets and disperse dollars out to uh, loved ones. Um, it's like, hey, how do we set up a new policy now that then covers uh, those beneficiaries so that those assets might be there um, either till they're 21 or just through their lifetime. So yeah, it's kind of coming back to that um, legacy planning. It's more than be your own bank or be your own fund. It's put something in place that's going to outlast your own life. Will the last Bitcoin ever be mined? Oh, that's a very good question. I do think that there's enough um, social and almost meme value in continuing to run the Bitcoin software. Um, so I do think it will be mined. And who is Satoshi? It's another great one. I still uh, like to think of it as that kind of group of cryptographers and having some understanding that let's make sure that no one person can be attributed for Bitcoin's creation so that, uh, you know, be it governments or any other um, nefarious reasons, you don't take out one person as that initial founder. And I'm very convinced Hal Finney was one of the people involved, uh, but the others uh, will never know. Paul, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of Blockchain New Zealand Podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. Cheers.